I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we'll be reading Deuteronomy chapters 17 through 20. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, the first seven verses are about serving other gods. Well, it's still a death sentence. Verse 1. Thou shalt not sacrifice unto the Lord thy God any bullock or sheep wherein is blemish, or any evil favoredness, for that is an abomination to the Lord thy God. If there be found among you within any of thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, man or woman that hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord thy God, in transgressing his covenant, and hath gone and served other gods, and worshipped them, either the sun or moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it, and inquired diligently, and behold, it be true, and the thing certain that such abomination is wrought in Israel, then shalt thou bring forth that man or that woman which have committed that wicked thing into thy gates, even that man or that woman, and shall stone them with stones till they die. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So thou shalt put the evil away from among you. Well, I think you see that Israel was not a freedom of religion nation. As a matter of fact, the daily life of the Hebrews revolved around their worship of Jehovah, the one true God. In these instructions, we see mandates to that effect. First of all, verse 1 makes it clear that any animal sacrifice must include an animal that is without blemish. What about something as blatant as worshiping other gods? Well, here it is. Get caught worshiping other gods and you die. There's a caveat, though. If you report someone in Israel for serving other gods, you'd better have other witnesses. It takes two or more witnesses to convict. Oh, one more thing. If you're a witness to this heathen worship, you've got to cast the first stone when he or she is put to death. If you want a fuller view regarding the punishment of these corrupt worship practices, see the notes on Deuteronomy chapter 13. Now, next we find in verses 8 through 13, Israel's equivalent of the Supreme Court. Verse 8. If there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment between blood and blood, between plea and plea, and between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within thy gates, then thou shalt arise and get thee up into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt come unto the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge that shall be in those days, and inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. And thou shalt do according to the sentence which they of that place which the Lord shall choose shall show thee. And thou shalt observe to do according to all that they inform thee, according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach thee, and according to the judgment which they shall tell thee, thou shalt do. Thou shalt not decline from the sentence which they shall show thee, to the right hand nor to the left. 
And the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken unto the priest that standeth to minister there before the Lord thy God, or unto the judge, even that man shall die. And thou shalt put away the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and do no more presumptuously. Now keep in mind, these instructions are given to the people as they're preparing to go over and inhabit their new land, Canaan. They'll be spread out, decentralized, for the first time in their history since they, they left Egypt. This section deals with appeals made to a higher court, so to speak. If you, make a, uh, if you take a legal matter to the priest or to one of the judges in Israel, for that ultimate level of mediation, whether it's criminal or civil, he is the man. After he rules on a matter... If you disregard that ruling, well, it's a death sentence. Then we find rules regarding future kings of Israel in verses 14 through 20. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. That he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, he shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the thrones of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book, out of that which is set before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. That his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Well, as a matter of fact, Israel did plead for a king to reign over them when we get over to First Samuel chapter 8. Samuel, who was the judge of Israel, after conferring with God on the request, he finally does appoint their first king, and that's Saul. He reigns over them and begins in 1 Samuel chapter 10. When I hear the guidelines for selecting a king to rule over Israel, he must be a God-chosen, homegrown Hebrew boy, not a gold digger, and he must have a limited number of wives, not proud or conceited, and he better obey the law. As a matter of fact, he's required to copy the law himself into his own book and read it daily as one of the duties of the king. By the way, the practice of taking other kings' daughters as wives ended up being the downfall of Solomon. Notice uh, these verses in 1 Kings chapter 11 regarding Solomon's wives. It says this, 1 Kings 11:3, And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Verse 4, for it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So we see that 
Solomon's wives erected altars to pagan gods right there on the temple grounds. Solomon's temple. No wonder the northern kingdom after the death of Solomon never, 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 never served God. He should have heeded these verses in Deuteronomy. Now, in contrast, while Solomon's father David had multiple wives, we see that in Second Samuel chapter 3, he did not indulge in excesses as did his son Solomon. Now we come to chapter 18 and we see a word here about feeding the priests. Verse 1. The priests, the Levites, and all the tribe of Levi shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his inheritance. Therefore shall they have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance, as he hath said unto them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from them that offer a sacrifice, whether it be ox or sheep. And they shall give unto the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the maul. The first fruit also of thy corn, of thy wine, and of thine oil, and the first of the fleece of thy sheep shalt thou give him. For the Lord thy God hath chosen him out of all thy tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. And if a Levite come from any of thy gates out of all Israel, where he sojourned, and come with all the desire of his mind unto the place which the Lord shall choose, then he shall minister in the name of the Lord his God, as all his brethren the Levites do, which stand there before the Lord. They shall have like portions to eat, beside that which cometh of the sale of his patrimony. Well, the priest had to eat, and with mighty fine cuts of meat, I might add, the sacrifice business did have its rewards. They received compensation from the rest of Israel for their service to the people. Within the tribe of Levi, the priesthood proper was restricted to Aaron and his descendants, according to Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. The number of eligible priests narrowed even more two generations later, when in Numbers chapter 25, verses 10 to 13, it was decreed that priests from that time forward would come only from the line of Aaron's grandson, Phinehas. The remainder of the tribes of the Levites were set aside for supporting duties in the tabernacle and temple, as we see in Numbers chapter 3. All of them were to be treated equally with regard to provisions. Incidentally, despite this Phinehas prophecy, there was a period of time where the priesthood was not controlled by a descendant of Phinehas. Eli, during the period of the judges, was not his descendant. However, we do see in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 to 36, that the priesthood through his lineage would one day be cut off. And in fact, this transfer would take place later under Solomon's authority as a fulfillment of this prophecy in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 27 and verse 35. Upon arrival in Canaan, the Levites were to inhabit 48 cities spread throughout Israel. See the notes on Joshua chapter 21 for more details on that. A rotation of serving Levites at the tabernacle was apparently set up prior to the shifts we see in David's era, which were established in 1 Chronicles chapters 23 through 26. Now, verses 6 through 8 here specify that the Levite who comes from outside of the region where the tabernacle is located to serve at the tabernacle is not to experience any discrimination from the local Levites. In verses 9 through 14, we 
reviews some bad habits those Canaanites seem to have had. Verse 9. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you any one that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divinations, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination to the Lord." Because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. For these nations which thou shalt possess hearkened unto observers of times and unto diviners. But as for thee, the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee to do so. You'll recall that it was their heathen practices for which God allowed the Canaanites to be driven out of the land in the first place. That's according to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, which says, Speak not thou in thine heart after the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. So, Israelites, you'd better make dead sure that none of those detestable heathen practices of worship rub off on you. It's worth noting that the practices of witchcraft are front and center in this section. Israel is to have nothing to do whatsoever with witchcraft. I think it's important to point out that while these heathen nations were not under the law of Moses, their practices of worship were such an abomination that God caused them to be driven out of their land. Do we see an era-spanning principle here? As a matter of fact, the wickedness of the nations in Canaan is also cited as the reason that they had to be displaced. We see that in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 27 and 28, and again in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 23. Can it possibly be the case that God may in fact orchestrate the demise of nations today based upon abominable practices toward the one true God? In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22, we have some very important verses on Moses prophesying the Messiah. Now, incidentally, I've written an article entitled, Moses Prophesied the Messiah. It's under the topic section of BibleTrack.org, which will give you a complete overview. But let's read these verses, beginning with verse 15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, and to him ye shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord 
hath not spoken, when a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is, the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. Well, Moses does two things in these eight verses. First of all, he prophesies regarding the coming of the Messiah, to whom he refers to as a prophet. Now, at first glance, you might assume that he's talking about Joshua. Actually, however, Moses is talking about Jesus himself. It's interesting to note that Jesus is the English transliteration of the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word for Joshua. Now, how appropriate that Joshua led them into Canaan and Jesus will lead them into the millennium. The Jews of Jesus' day understood this to be a reference to the Messiah as evidenced by Philip in John chapter 1, verse 45. Philip points out that Jesus is the Messiah of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write his own words there. Additionally, we find that Jesus, after his resurrection, confirms that, in fact, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, is a reference to himself. He does so in Luke 24, 27, which says this, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There's simply no other passage of scripture from the hand of Moses to which this statement could be referring. So here's a clear prophecy from Moses regarding the Messiah. As a matter of fact, Peter emphasizes that Jesus fulfilled this very Mosaic prophecy in his message of Acts chapter 3, and that's specifically found in verses 22 and 23 of that chapter. Secondly, Moses warns against false prophets, and he gives a set of criteria that any true prophet will meet. Here's some guidelines for anyone who professes to be a prophet. First of all, a true prophet speaks only God's words. Number two, if he lies, he dies. Number three, if he speaks for other gods, well, again, he dies. And finally, if he's ever wrong, you can just disregard him because true prophets are never wrong. Now we come to Deuteronomy chapter 19. What happens if you killed somebody, but you didn't mean to? Verse 1. When the Lord thy God hath cut off the nations whose land the Lord thy God giveth thee, and thou succeedest them, and dwellest in their cities and in their houses, thou shalt separate three cities for thee in the midst of the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. Thou shalt prepare thee away, and divide the coast of thy land which the Lord thy God giveth thee to inherit, into three parts, that every slayer may flee thither. And this is the case of the slayer which shall flee thither, that he may live, whoso killeth his neighbor ignorantly, whom he hateth not in time past. And when a man goeth into the wood with his neighbor to hew wood, and his hand fetcheth a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slippeth from the helve, and lighteth upon his neighbor, that he die, he shall flee into one of those cities and live, lest the avenger of the blood pursue the slayer, while his heart is hot and overtake him, because the way is long, and slay him, whereas he was not worthy of death, inasmuch as he hateth him not in times past. Wherefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt separate three cities for thee. 
And if the Lord thy God enlarge thy coast, as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, and give thee all the land which he promised to give unto thy fathers, if thou shalt keep all these commandments to do them, which I command thee this day, to the love of the Lord thy God, and to walk ever in his ways, then shalt thou add three cities more for thee, besides these three, that innocent blood be not shed in thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and so blood be upon thee. But if any man hate his neighbor, and lie, and wait for him, and rise up against him, and smite him mortally that he die, and fleeth into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and fetch him thence and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. Thine eye shall not pity him, but thou shalt put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with thee. Okay, so what if you killed somebody as a result of an accident? Well, as the scripture says, Whoso killeth his neighbor ignorantly, whom he hath not hated in time past. Well, that's as an example found in verses 4 and 5. Well, in that case, you better hightail it to one of the six cities of refuge. There were three in Canaan and three east of the Jordan River. If you really didn't mean to do it, they'll protect you. It's bad news, though, for the guy who intended to inflict harm, a premeditated murder. They're going to turn you over to the blood relative avenger chasing you when he arrives, and they're going to allow him to take you out, so to speak, according to the stipulations of verses 11 and 12. Elsewhere, the regulations concerning the city's refuge are found in Numbers chapter 35, verses 9 through 34, and again in Joshua chapter 20. These cities were six of the 48 cities inhabited by the Levites, three of them east of the Jordan, as I said, and three of them west of the Jordan. If you'd like to see uh, more information on these cities of refuge, I've provided a chart for you in the written notes of BibleTrack.org on Joshua chapter 21. We have one verse that talks about original surveys in verse 14 of chapter 19. Here's what it says. Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. As I mentioned, here's one verse dedicated to ensuring that survey markings don't get moved or altered. You'll recall that these land inheritances were perpetual. Even if you sold your land, it came back to your family in the year of Jubilee, according to Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 55. So, don't you dare remove those markers. Then we have some sobering laws concerning witnesses in verses 15 to 21. Verse 15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness, and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall you do unto him as he hath thought to have done unto his brother. So shall thou put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eyes shall not pity, 
that life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Well, we see in this passage that if you're a witness to a crime, you better be sure or you'll be in for a surprise. Better yet, make certain to have a couple of other witnesses along to validate your accusation. Here's the Hebrew version of the loser pays the court fees in verse 19. If the witness is deemed by the judges to be lying, he gets the punishment instead of the accused. It's likely that Jesus based Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 17 on this passage with regard to the number of witnesses needed in the matter of church discipline. That brings us to chapter 20. And we've got some understanding generals in this passage. Verse 1. When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies and seest horses and chariots and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them, for the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be when ye are come nigh into the battle that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people and shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, ye approach this day into battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint, fear not, do not tremble, neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And the officers shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that hath built a new house and hath not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. And what man is he that hath planted a vineyard, and hath not yet eaten of it? Let him also go and return into his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. And what man is there that hath betrothed a wife, and hath not taken her? Let him go and return into his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further unto the people, and they shall say, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return into his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. And it shall be, when the officers have made an end of speaking unto the people, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. All right, now let's talk about going to battle. Never mind the fact that the enemy has you outnumbered, God will deliver them into your hands. Notice the careful selection of troops to fight Israel's battles in these verses. Sir, I just realized I forgot to dedicate my house before I came out here to the battlefield. May I be excused? Well, sure, son. Go ahead and take off, the general replies. Another man says he's betrothed. That's more than engaged, but less than married. He's betrothed to a woman, and another says he's working on his vineyard. Well, guys, you're all excused, the general replies. Then one guy pops up and says, Got no house, got no vineyard, got no wife, I'm just scared. He also gets to go home. What an understanding army, that Hebrew army. Where we're going and what we're going to do takes dedication. Thus, all the fighting men in the Hebrew army were to be men who were there willingly and without hesitation. Incidentally, Gideon pared his fighting force down from 32,000 all the way down to 10,000 simply by encouraging those who were fearful of the battle to just head on home. That's in Judges chapter 7. Then we have some rules of engagement for battle in verses 10 through 20. Verse 10, When thou comest nigh unto a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace unto it, and it shall be, 
that make the answer of peace and open unto thee, then it shall be that all the people that is found therein shall be tributaries unto thee, and they shall serve thee. And it will make no peace with thee, but will make war against thee. Then thou shalt besiege it. And when the Lord thy God hath delivered it into thine hands, thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword. But the women and the little ones and the cattle and all that is in the city, even all the spoil thereof, shalt thou take unto thyself, and thou shalt eat the spoil of thine enemies, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. Thus thou shalt do unto all the cities which are far from thee, which are not of the cities of these nations. But of the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth. But thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee that they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods, so should ye sin against the Lord your God. For thou shalt besiege a city a long time, and making war against it to take it. Thou shalt not destroy the trees thereof by forcing an axe against them. For thou mayest eat of them, and thou shalt not cut them down, for the tree of the field is man's life, to employ them in the siege." Only the trees which thou knowest that they be not trees for meat, thou shalt destroy and cut them down. And thou shalt build bulwarks against the city that maketh war with thee until it be subdued. Well, we see here that when Israel's army moves into a territory and the people surrender, then they're going to make them tributaries. If they fight against Israel, then they're to kill all the men. This applies to territories outside Canaan, as we see in verse 15. None of the Canaanites should be permitted to stay, verse 16, and it's because of the heathen worship practices might rub off on the Israelites. The Hebrews did seem to gravitate to a good-looking idol. You'll notice all through their history. Again, keep in mind Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, regarding these pagan inhabitants of Canaan. That verse says, But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. God had already passed judgment upon these people just as certainly as he had on Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. Israel was simply to be God's instrument of judgment here. Also, they were instructed, when you make war against the Canaanites, take it easy on the natural resources in verses 19 and 20. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.